0: Welcome to The Source, Investments podcast covering trends and insights in institutional investing, and where we get to sit down with industry experts and investment experts to get their takes on trends in the industry. In today's episode, I'm joined by Alan Snyder, managing partner of the family office investment boutique, Shinnecock Partners. Shinnecock Partners was founded in 1989 and specializes in alternative investment and fund-to-funds portfolios. Alan and his team publish a lot of research, and we spent our conversation talking about their research into manager evaluation and due diligence. We talked about the biggest mistakes he sees made in the manager evaluation process, the data he relies on in those evaluations, and how critical the on site and in person meetings are in that process. So, we talk about how investors can work through that now and how managers can best overcome that with the lack of in person interaction due to the pandemic. We also chat about the world of fine art investing and art lending and how Alan launched the Discover card. If you have questions on how to leverage investment data to improve your research and due diligence process, or if you already have access to it and are just looking for some more help on where to get started, please reach out to us at solutions at investment.com. With that, let's hear from Alan. Uh, so Alan, thank you for joining us. Before we we jump in, can you take a moment just to give us a little bit of background on your career, your role, in Shinnecock Partners?
1: I'd be happy to. Alan Snyder is my name. I was the founder of a small investment boutique family office flavor called Shinnecock Partners. I had the temerity that started 30 plus years ago. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, How I started, it's it's sort of a wild and crazy story. I was, uh, had been on Wall Street a long time and was managing, maybe they were managing me, pretty much all of the product areas for what became Morgan Stanley. And my, uh, in addition to my day job, I was with a couple of other people and we started the Discover card. At which point I decided it wasn't much fun anymore. And so I said to, uh, Phil Purcell, who's running the company, I said, Phil, life is short, I'm not having fun, I'm gonna work myself into an early grave, so I'm quitting. And he said, oh, don't quit, he was very nice. I said, no, no, I have to go off and see if I can survive on my own. But here's the humor. I, uh, as a young punk, no doubt, um, I knew Wall Street never met a fee they didn't like and were casual about risk, because Lord knows I was uh, guilty uh, so I started Shinnecock cause I had a few pennies and I didn't want to lose them. Uh, so I created an all weather fund a long time ago, which is motored along. We've gone beyond that, uh, subsequently because I knew I'd go off and do other things, uh, which I did. And, uh, for some of your older listeners, <laughs> I went out to California for the privilege of getting my fanny shot off and spent seven years restructuring uh, this 20 billion dollar insurance company called executive life uh, you'll laugh they had a 20 billion dollar portfolio 18 billion in high yield bonds and two billion dollars in alternatives as drexel is going under oops um, so i spent a lot of time restructuring high yield bonds and apropos our later on conversation uh, picking money managers for the other $2 billion Uh, and contrary to public opinion, everybody got their money back. So I'm actually proud of what we were able to do because nobody thought that could happen Uh, from there. Now you're going to run from this interview. I uh, started an internet company, sort of taking leaf out of your book a little bit Mm -hmm. and uh, had this Air-brained idea if you could give people the ability to compare insurance policies head to head you might have a business well battered and bruised 10 years later we became the largest seller of auto and home using the web and call centers in the U.S. and sold the company to insurance went back to uh, Shinnecock Partners full-time after selling it uh, so that's my uh, checkered past
0: wow that's a uh... It's quite a, a past, very impressive, but hold on. You glossed over the, like, yeah, and as a, a, a night job, I started the Discover card. How does that happen? Like, tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Oh, okay. It's a wild story. <laughs> uh, Ed Telling, who was running Sears, and Sears owned the company at the time, said they were infatuated with financial services. I kidded them. i I'll show you what an idiot I am. McKinsey was everywhere in Sears. So we had an army of McKinsey people running around and we analyzed it. And uh, I'll never forget going to the black tower in Chicago and the chairman of Sears said, okay, Snyder, you know, you're from the broker dealer, but uh, I told you to keep a Sears view of the world. What do you think we should do on this? And Rich, you could have heard a pin drop because I said, I don't think you should do it there was stunned silence in the room. Everybody knew he wanted to do it. Yeah. I said, because you're gonna neglect Sears. Sears is the golden goose and it'll cost $450 million to launch the Discover card. He said, thanks Alan, I appreciate it. You did listen to me with your other colleagues, go do the the uh, Discover card anyway. <laughs> so huh. that's how it got started.
0: That's very cool. So. Yeah, if we jump right in so I, I spent some time going through some of the articles on your website you guys put out a lot of uh of research so it's very interesting uh and I, I read a lot on stuff related to manager evaluation and a lot of that's best practices what do you think is the biggest mistake investors make when it comes to manager due diligence
1: you know a nifty question you know how often as an allocator of capital which we are and and probably most of the listeners Somebody says, oh, Rich, you got to hurry. We got to close this ASAP. And all of a sudden you rush the due diligence process. Don't. Don't. Once the money's out, uh, so I would say the biggest thing is rushing the due diligence process. The other interesting trade-off I would say is, and we all worry about fraud in financial services, in everything that we do. But the interesting issue is, if you look at the number of frauds versus terrible absolute performance, absolute performance, crappy absolute performance is the bigger risk, Mm -hmm. interestingly. uh, So I would say, be careful in not skewing your due diligence to just looking at potential fraud issues and look at, you know, is whatever the manager or the strategy is doing, is it have a replicatable event?
0: So related to that, uh, I also saw a document where you posted 363 questions to ask a manager in the due diligence process. So maybe uh, that will slow you down. Are these the questions that that you follow, and are you relying on? any outside data sources like a like a database like investment or is it kind of direct data sharing with the managers
1: yes we in our lead up to this i suggested you know we have 22 white papers on doing due diligence on managers um i guess it just means that we're old and have uh, done it whether it was uh on the wall street experience the at shinnecock or the insurance company You know, battered and bruised. You know, we we have learned a lot from that. So we talk about yes, we ask the questions. Are they each of those questions relevant to any every particular strategy? No, but most of them are. But you got to go beyond that. You got to know what information to ask for. And there's an article about that. You got to say okay, a little tricky with COVID. If I'm doing on-site due diligence, uh, how do, what do I do when I'm on-site? And some of the things that we talk about in there are I don't think so obvious. Let me give you an example that you can do even in a COVID situation. Talk with different people at different strata in the organization and talk to them independently from each other. And you'd be amazed at how candid some people will be when nobody else is there. That has saved our bacon. One other thing that has saved our fanny and there are a lot of humorous war stories. We also engage before we'll invest with somebody, a third party due diligence firm. And we asked, a manager or a strategist, okay, is there anything in your uh, background that we should be aware of? And uh, most of the time, people say, Oh, no, Alan, you know, I'm pure as the driven snow. Well, there was a, a class, I won't name the name, there was a guy we asked that of in Hawaii. It's a fun story. He said, Oh, no, no problem. Well, we got this due diligence report. Here was what had happened. He'd been in a fistfight with his neighbor in Hawaii. He owed $80,000 to American Express, and they had a judgment against him. And he had a $30,000 federal tax lien. We said, gee, you, you forgot to tell us that. <laughs> and, and he said, uh, well, you know, it's no big deal. And We said, well, it's, it's a little too peppy for uh, conservative people like us, so we passed. Uh, so that's another good thing to do. On on the databases, we we use databases like yours, they're very powerful. Uh great. We also use an informal network which you clearly have as a company have encouraged. Uh we use that. Uh we like getting when we talk to somebody that's, you know, applying a particular strategy We ask them to say, hey, who, if we don't know them, and we don't know anybody that's invested in that strategy, who are current investors that we can talk to? And we like to do that as well.
0: So you you mentioned COVID briefly. So obviously, maybe the way that your process worked doesn't work necessarily in COVID. And you've talked about on-site inspection as like an integral final step, I think is the quote, before putting up money. Is that still the case with COVID? Are are you still kind of requiring these on-site visits or have you pivoted at at all?
1: Maybe we're weak-kneed and and, uh, just trying to get practical. Have we done that today? Clearly, no. So what it does is it puts a greater burden on the other aspects of doing due diligence. It puts a greater burden on conversations independently of of the people in the particular strategy or execution. Puts a heavier weight on that kind of stuff. Puts a heavier weight on the third party due diligence. Uh, And clearly a heavier weight on talking with people that are existing investors mm-hmm. that may have invested, hopefully prior to COVID, and can give us some insights.
0: Yeah, we—I uh, actually—I hosted a, a panel uh, in fun form over in Europe last week with uh, a handful of investors who we were talking about this, and they said they recommended that managers actually spend a lot of their time. Uh, maintaining existing relationships rather than going out and trying to find new investors. Because as you said, we're not in the environment where that's easy for us to do right now. So you're probably better off just making sure your current clients are okay. And that it also probably is an advantage for an existing manager who might have a strategy in another asset class or universe where they're looking, because you've already got that relationship.
1: Well, you know, you're interesting. It's a great insight on your part because And it resonates with me because I would say to any managers listening that adhere to what you just suggested because their greatest source of additional capital are from their existing investors. Not that they will always put in more, but those existing investors have a network that they talk with. Mm -hmm. And if they're saying, Hey, rich is the neatest thing since Wheaties that will help and attract people to them. So you're right.
0: <laughs> so maybe for those managers listening, uh, can you elaborate on like, what is the best way just to engage with you now? Like Or, or just would you recommend engaging with, with anyone um, looking to allocate capital at this time? So I know we touched on it briefly, but what would you say just kind of some tips and tricks?
1: Okay, fair enough. Here's what I would say is the the cranky guide to managers. And it's it's an absolute puzzle to me why more of them don't do it. Maybe it's from corporate finance, but here's the deal. Instead of dribbling out information to somebody that is inquiring about what you are doing as a manager, put it in a data warehouse in the cloud so that the interested party in one lump very efficiently for the manager can access all of the information as opposed to getting it in dribbles, whether it's a DDQ, whether it's uh, frequently asked questions, whether it's uh, insightful articles on the particular strategy transcending the, the particular manager, right? Uh, you're trying to create an informed investor that knows the reality of uh what the strategy is about and what the risks and rewards can be that'll make them more durable is my point and it will ease the process for the manager and the potential investor both that to me uh always puzzles me why more managers don't do that hmm. uh, as an example
0: so i A lot of our episodes have been focused on the traditional side of things. Um, And I know you guys focus a lot on alternative assets. And something uh, I saw on your website was interesting I want to ask you about is fine art. Ah, Uh, So can you just talk about how like the the historical performance of fine art and how you guys actually go about investing in it?
1: Sure, the biggest issue the, the famous and very successful 60-40 portfolio, right? 60% equity or equity high-octane investments and 40% debt. It's worked through time. One buzzword, which I talk about in an article that says much portfolio advice is wackadoodle. <laughs> I think that's true. And it gets to the whole concept of or uh, er- 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 ergodicity and ergodic scenarios. Basically, it says nobody can get the long-term average. And with bonds, the 40%, would anybody in their right mind today buy medium-term, high-grade bonds at a you know terrible interest rate where the risk-reward is totally asymmetric? Here's the problem. What do you put in that 40% bucket? And that's what leads us to niche investments. And uh, you can do niche investments sometimes at scale. Why niche? Lower correlation. Nassim Taleb of some fame, far greater than mine for sure, anti fragile. And most niche investments are defensible. Okay, art. Lending against museum quality fine art. This. I would argue is truly compelling. Now, why? The collateral over the last 50 years has appreciated 8%. If I'm gonna create a debt instrument against an asset, a hard asset, gee, more room to be wrong if it's appreciating generally over time, yay. It's an international asset like gold.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Art moves around the world. Real estate's a great investment. But if I buy a building in Los Angeles and the LA market tanks, I'm toast. I can't move the building. Art, I could sell it in Hong Kong, Abu Dhabi, London, wherever. So the the collateral is also visible in its pricing, particularly high-end art. Maybe it's gone through an auction. That's about as great a price visibility as you can get. An open outcry. It's Sotheby's, Christie's, Bonham's, or Phillips. All right, here's the trade. Find a great piece of art, diligence the hell out of it for providence, providence and authenticity. Do all your homework, then extend a one-year term loan. I love short duration. We just did a deal yesterday, an 11% coupon against a very famous painting we take control of the underlying collateral yippee i mean don't if somebody were to default we haven't had a default in three and a half years of doing this we will but we haven't we've got the collateral in a bonded warehouse so it's short duration you collect the interest up front the borrower pays the insurance costs and the borrower pays the storage costs pretty good how big's the market All right, that's what a cynic or I would have said years ago. There's about $64.5 billion worth of art transactions a year. There's approximately give or take a smidgen about $24 billion of outstanding art loans. So you've got a, a, a big market. You've got collateral that's global. It's like gold, moves around the world you can diligence it you have price visibility in the underlying art and then of course you don't want to lend at a high loan to value ratio in our case i'm sure others can do it differently we lend at 30 to 50 percent of the current market for that piece of art now i word i'm the largest investor in what we're doing it's rich <laughs> What has been the drawdown in art? Is that 30 to 50% enough of a cushion? So we then looked at art over particularly the last 20 years and said, what's been the largest drawdown? Everybody would instantly say, oh, Alan, it's obvious. It was 2008 and 2009. We all remember the S&P went down, I think it was like 53%. Museum quality fine art was down 22 and a half percent, giving you some comfort against that LTV. Now, I don't think that's the whole answer. <laughs> My guys that were working on it said, oh, Snyder, get off our back. They said, well, what's been the price volatility of art in any two year window of time? So window it using Excel back over the last 25, in that case, 25 years. And the average price volatility for high-end art has been 8%. Uh, because again, we're not making an equity bet on the art. We're doing it as a lender. So what are the rates? The rates are somewhere between 9 and 13%. Uh, three segments of the market. Uh, our prejudice is I love doing inventory finance Rich, for a gallery or a dealer. Why? Because, again, I think losing money sucks. The, the gallery, gallerist or dealer, we're financing against an individual piece or, or multiple pieces of art. Fine. But his reputation is more important than playing any games with us. So they have real skin in the game and the loans are recourse. So that's one segment. High-end collectors is another. Stevie Cohen of of great fame from SAC leverages his art collection. He says, I know what I'm doing and I want to soup up the returns. Other people may need cash. We've had this, you know, to pay some taxes or one guy (laughs) had a major art collection and wanted to uh, monetize some of it, not sell it. Didn't want to pay the capital gains tax but he wanted more cash to uh, buy another company. Uh, The third segment is the uh, private bank segment. Interesting there, private banks, you know, have, they charge their ultra high net worth investors a lot of money for their fees. So it's a very profitable account. So they're happy to lend money to an ultra wealthy person to buy a yacht, buy a Picasso, by a Gulfstream, and they'll do it at rates that for somebody that doesn't have that super profitable account relationship attractive, so we really don't play in that segment. So we really like the space. Uh, We think it's a great uncorrelated, everything correlates to one at some point, but low correlation addition in that 40% bucket. High end art, I think, really provides a relatively safe investment at an attractive yield, far better than high yield bonds. So you got to choose your poison, and we have chosen that. Um, so we really like the art space. We love specialty lending, but oh my God, it's endless work. You got to find the deal, got to diligence the deal, and your database will give some people insights into that. But then, after the deal is done, you have to continually do diligence it. Now, just to go back to art, there aren't a lot of art lenders. That's good, and yet there's a capital need, a demand for that inventory financing. I think those are the places that you want to be where there isn't a wash in capital and you know you can do all your homework and you can have time to do it well and be a specialty lender so uh, that's the appeal to us about uh, art lending uh, and the way different ways to execute it.
0: That's really interesting. Uh, And again, something we don't talk about a lot and it makes me think uh, my wife is an art history major. So she will uh, enjoy hearing about this. I think early on in the COVID pandemic, one of the shows we were binge watching, I forget the name of it, was around researching the providence of some of these pieces of fine art that were maybe in question, um, that uh, what was thought to be fraudulent might've turned out to be the real thing or vice versa. So uh, it's interesting.
1: Oh, hey, one thing. For, for any of your listeners on art, since we've probably bored them to tears in talking about it, but to make it useful, again, on our website, there's an article that talks about insuring fine art. And whether somebody actually decides to use it as an investment or not, a lot of your listeners will have art pieces. Here's the key. Be very careful about how you insure it don't think it automatically in your homeowner's policy is covered. It usually has to be scheduled. And if it's truly valuable, you want to get it a separate art policy against all sorts of different things. Mm -hmm. I won't go into the details, but, and it's not that expensive. Uh, of course, if your house burns down, we live in California, (laughs) it's a a non-trivial risk. Uh, or a hurricane or water damage, uh, take a squint at that, and just be sure that your art is properly insured.
0: Or if you have a two-year-old at home like we do, just <laughs> don't do it. My wife is a big Chihuly fan, uh, the the glass artist. Um, Beautiful. I just uh, we've been out to the Chihuly Museum in Seattle, and uh, that I just envision glass shattering all over the house at some point if we ever if we ever got the ability to, to get a Chihuly.
1: Well, you will. (laughs) That's in your future. I can tell it's beautiful stuff. I agree with
0: you. Um, Well, we, uh, I know we talked a lot about the articles. We'll also include a link to all the, to, to your website. So listeners can get access to that stuff. I spent a lot of time last night going through and it's, uh, there are a lot of good reads. Um, I learned a lot, but uh, I want to, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, I'm, I think it was a really interesting perspective for both the, the investors who are trying to get an idea on kind of how they go about the due diligence process. Managers always love to kind of see behind the curtain and how people are, uh, evaluating them to kind of give them a leg up. So I think that was a really helpful perspective as well.
1: Well, let me say thank you for, uh, all of your preparation. Uh, clearly you did and thank you for that and uh thank you for all that your company does because it's some very neat stuff that you guys put out
0: well i appreciate it and we'll uh maybe next time we'll have you on we'll talk about fine wine uh next cool all right i hope you enjoyed hearing from alan about his evaluation process and the tips and tricks that he provided for the managers listening i know it's always helpful to get a glimpse into the mind of investors some of the unique insights investment can provide like this or how your strategies are being researched in the investment platform, as well as things like consultant recommendations and ratings on you and your peers. For asset owners, the investment database contains nearly 24,000 traditional strategies and hedge funds to help you select the best managers and ultimately hold them accountable once you do. For more information on how to access these insights, email us at solutions at investment.com. As always... Thank you for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you soon.